Welcome to this podcast series supported by Longwoods Publishing. We want to bring you a series of stimulating conversations with leaders and researchers within the nursing profession and the health system in Canada. I am your host, Kathleen McMillan, a nurse with over 50 years experience in the profession who has held roles in academia, administration and policy, as well as clinical practice. What have we learned from the experience of the pandemic that can build resilience for any future shock on this scale? Today's topic is on long-term care, and uh, I'm very pleased to welcome uh, Dr. Pat Armstrong, who is uh, currently the Distinguished um, Research Professor Emeritus at York University. Pat has been studying long-term care for over 20 years and had a 10-year project with an interdisciplinary um, multi-country team that is, uh, that is still working but uh, wrapped up their project in 2020. And she holds a master in uh, Canadian studies and her PhD in sociology is from Carleton University. Welcome, Pat. Thank you so much for participating in our uh, podcast series. You've been uh, around the block on these issues for some time as, uh, as a researcher. Why do you think we keep uh, conducting reviews and putting recommendations out on long-term care and nothing seems to change? Well, there's a long tradition in Canada of setting up commissions to address problems and then doing nothing about what the conditions <laughs> recommend. So uh, I think that it's not particularly new in long-term care, except that we have had so many of them uh, that it's time something happened. Although we have done something, and as we showed in one of the studies we did comparing countries, when there was some kind of crisis, uh, investigations happened, but the most likely consequence of those was more regulation of the people who provide care rather than regulation of the structural issues that have an impact on care, like staffing levels, for instance. So you make the staff report more, you make them do more things, but and you surveil them more, but you don't do anything about the number of staff that are there, for example. Yeah, and I'm, I'm reminded, uh, you know, of that old saw that when you look at uh, problems in any system, you want to look at... Um, uh, people and processes and, uh, and structures. And it's always easy to focus on the people, but often it's the structures and processes that really need some attention and change. Absolutely. When we did research in the United States, we researched the United States, Norway, Sweden, Germany, and Canada. Uh, we were told in the U.S. that they felt that they were more regulated than the nuclear industry but it hasn't really produced better results as certainly has been obvious in COVID. And that's in part because the focus has been on the people who provide the care as opposed to the structures in which they do get to provide the care. Right, and the, the other thing around um, reports is I'm reminded of a quote from Florence Nightingale who many years ago said, uh, reports are not self-executive. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and one of the things we also found in our research was that the regulations uh, were really common in North America, where you have the biggest proportion of for-profit ownership and least common in Norway, where you have a very small proportion of for-profit ownership. So it, it is related to 
uh, a political will, if you if you will, which, which is the other way I would put uh, the Florence Nightingale quote. Uh, and uh, there are some powerful forces trying to move against that kind of structural change, I think. Right. Well, the, the COVID pandemic, similar to the SARS um, you know, uh, event, which was you know 15 or 20 years ago, it's hard to believe it's that, that long ago. Um, and they made a lot of hidden problems in long-term care visible. And there were some genuine horror stories this time related to long-term care um, in the COVID-19 experience, particularly in Ontario and, and Quebec. And a disproportionate number of deaths in this sector from the virus in Canada compared to other jurisdictions. What factors do you think were particularly in evidence here? Should we have been able to predict these based on previous experiences or previous reports? Yes, I think we already knew what the major issues were in terms of long-term care. We did, to some extent, think about SARS and focus on hospitals instead of uh, focusing on long-term care. But to go back to your first question in some ways, we, we haven't done much in long-term care, in part, I would argue, because this is primarily care for women, by women, and the women are old. And those are the least valued people in many ways in our society. And I think that that, and, and of course, many of the women who provide care and long-term care are newcomers to Canada and or racialized. And that all of that combines, I think, as a factor in terms of how we ignored, to some extent, long-term care for a long time. And then when the crisis came, we put initially our whole focus on hospitals rather than uh, on long-term care, or even suggested in some cases, oh, take your relative out of long-term care, which is simply not possible. I would love people to actually spend a week or so in a long-term care home and learn what it's like and who the people are who live in long-term care facilities and what kinds of work the people have to do in long-term care. That's what we did in our project. We'd take a team of 12 to 14 people, most of whom were senior researchers, into a home over the course of a week, starting at seven in the morning until after midnight. And that's the way to learn about what needs to be done in these places. And I'd love to take the decision makers yes. into those places for that length of time. Yeah, that would be a very interesting experiment, wouldn't it? It's largely a hidden place in terms of the kind of work. It's, you know, even though it's in an institutional setting, to some extent, a lot of the work is private and not and, and unseen. Well, and we don't want to think about going there. I have to say that many of my friends would say, I'm never going into one of those places. Well, people don't plan to go in these places, but they are necessary. They are, <laughs> anyone who's been there can tell you the kinds of the complex care needs for 24 hours a day that that people have in long-term care. And that's that's another issue, I think, in terms of long-term care is that we don't recognize this as skilled work. And that too has something to do with the, those who provide care being mainly women. We think this is care that any woman could do by virtue of being a woman. We do the same thing in home care, ignoring the kind of really complex care needs that people have, not just clinical care, but social care too, which is really important. 
Well, I, I, that kind of leads to me, me to the uh, next question that I had for you. Thinking of staffing in long-term care, is this a case of simple numbers of staff or ratios um, to residents? What else makes a difference to outcomes in this sector? And how does Canada compare with other OECD countries, for example, on staffing numbers and skill mix for long-term care? Well, there is no question that staffing is essential to care and in terms of the numbers of people there. But it's not just numbers. It's the who, what kind of mix you have, what kinds of uh, formal and informal training they have, uh, but also what kinds of conditions they work in. And we've learned during covid that they didn't have often appropriate training in terms of infection control. We learned that they often didn't have access to the kinds of things they needed to for uh, infection control. They didn't have the kind of autonomy they need to be able to respond to individual needs. And what we've heard over and over and over again is they don't have the time to care. Right. What, what is sort of the average ratio, like how many residents in a long-term care facility would a caregiver be responsible for in a typical shift, like during the day, I would say? Well, you could, in, in Canada, be up around 15 people that you could be responsible for, people who can't dress themselves, who need assistance in eating, people who have assistance to go to the bathroom. Uh, we And you could have 15 of those that you're responsible for. In average in Canada, we have about 3.2 hours per resident per day. Per day. Studies in the United States uh, more than a decade ago said that the absolute minimum should be four hours per resident per day. And of course, that's an average. Some residents need more than that and some, some need less. Um, and that we need to have RNs on staff, and we've been gradually reducing how many we have, but then we need RPNs on staff and gradually reducing the number of them. We've also carved out things like food and laundry and, and housekeeping and often privatized those, contracted them out to other countries who don't necessarily have training in long-term care. I interviewed one of the housekeeping staff in um, a long-term care home in Canada who worked for a contracted company and her previous job was in an airport and she received no special training when she went into the long-term care home. She was just told to make sure that uh, she didn't steal anything. <laughs> well, and then, and so um, that that's interesting because here in, in Prince Edward Island, and we've been very fortunate during the pandemic here, being an island, it does give you more, more opportunities to uh, control your environment. But one of the first things that was done here was to send infection control nurses into all of the long-term care facilities, private and public, and, and do um, education sessions on infection control. And we've, we've been very fortunate here. And I think, you know, some of those proactive interventions were, were very good, but it also points to the fact that we knew that there were gaps in advance of the uh, outbreak. What we also have heard over and over again is the need for continuous education on the job. Yeah. The needs of, of residents are, are really changing and they're changing really frequently. And in a city like Toronto, where I live, you have enormous language and cultural differences as well that really further complicate uh, the situation that less of that in, in PEI, I'm sure. 
they increasingly we're switching that training to online that you're supposed to do on your lunch hour. And one of the other things we've heard is that the staff need to have the time to mentor uh, new people coming in to the mm-hmm. home. And if you have people who are part-time and circulate amongst home, it's not only that they spread disease with them, as we uh, learned during the pandemic to our horror, but it's also the permanent staff has to take the time to say, oh, where do I find the diapers? Where do I, uh, where do you keep the meds? What's, you know, does Mrs. Jones like to eat peas? Those (laughs) They, yeah. they then have to take all that time to teach those people that's also not allowed for in the staffing uh, levels. No, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting uh, area indeed. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how corporate structures, you know, for-profit versus not-for-profit. And you did mention earlier that, you know, for example, in Norway, the number of for-profit facilities is significantly less than in Canada. But how, how does that um, impact levels of care? For example, the acuity of residents, because I notice here that in the private sector nursing homes, they tend to take less complex patients and that the complex patients tend to go more to the government uh, sponsored nursing homes. Uh, and how does that affect staffing and resources? And what if you have to generate dividends for shareholders? out of uh, the income that you have for your facility. You know, what what impact might that have on, on levels of care, on staffing, and, uh, and on the practice environment? Well, we have a number of studies comparing uh, not-for-profit, which could be government or, or voluntary organization, right, and for-profit. And the proportion of for-profit ownership in Canada varies enormously across the country. Uh, my province of Ontario has the highest proportion, about 58% now are, are corporate-owned. And I think it's really important to understand the difference between it being corporate-owned and being private, because those terms often get confused. And private, most likely, is a voluntary organization, a church or, or a, a right. Italian community or whatever, or, uh, or owning the place. Or it could be private, as was the case in the past, you know, 40 years ago, when you were talking about private, you were talking about a mom and pop place, often a nurse who would, with her partner, set up a small home. That's really different from a corporation. To go back to your question, in a corporation, their primary responsibility is to the shareholders. Right. And, and, And they have to make a profit. That's what they're required to do. And in, if we're talking about, and, and that's what we've been studying, is the homes that get the bulk of their funding from government, from our public money. And the same amounts of money go to the home, whether they're for-profit or not-for-profit in terms of the provincial territorial governments, right? So if some of that money is going for profit, it's not going for care. And if you look at the uh, research that has been done, for instance, in Ontario and BC, the staffing levels are lower, the salaries are lower, the uh, staff are more precarious in the sense that they're uh, more likely to be part-time, more likely to be temporary, thus thus less likely to provide continuity of care. So uh, all of the research, uh, and of course, research is always about patterns, (laughs) The pattern is lower staffing, lower quality in for-profit corporate care. 
And the the kinds of arguments that are made for the for-profit sector in, if you accept them in other areas, don't apply in long-term care. Because there's the notion is that you'll compete for quality and, and that that will make the quality. There is no competition here. No. We have wait times of up to three years. I had a friend phone me the other day and say, they just offered my husband a place uh, and we registered him three years ago. I mean, this is a competition. And in fact, if you look at the preferences in Ontario of where people want to go, it's first of all, municipal, second for profit, although often for profit because they speak Italian there or Greek there or uh, Mandarin there. But but their last choices are the, the corporate places. There's no incentive for them to be to provide better quality care because they're going to be full anyway. Yeah. And, and, and I, but, I think when we were looking at the data from uh, out of the COVID-19 experience, often it was the large corporate chains that, um, you know, had the worst outcomes, if I'm correct. Yes, that's certainly the evidence in Ontario. And the inquiry that's going on right now in Quebec on the Heron home is a, is uh, privately owned, that we have to, um, there's no question that, that the evidence is there of, of a very strong pattern. Of course, there are some uh, not-for-profit homes that aren't very good, and there are some corporate ones that are pretty good. But the overall pattern is clear, and, and I think it, there's just no justification for our public money being spent on profit. Right, and, and I think your point about that there's no competition, there's no, no force really driving wanting to be better. And what's the biggest cost in, uh, in long-term care? It's staff. So if you're going to make a profit, this is, these are the ways in which you uh, to uh, cut back, right? And, and the, the quality, it, the other argument that's often made is innovation. There's absolutely no evidence that the for-profits are innovating and providing us with, uh, you know, more innovative strategies in terms of, of long-term care, not as far as I'm concerned. And we have had a number of different uh, models for transforming long-term care, most of them quarter century old coming out of the United States, like the Eden uh, ex- experiment or the, uh, you know, greenhouse uh, the, the newest one really is the butterfly one that came out of the UK, but those didn't come out of corporate uh, developments yeah. at all. And the city of Toronto, uh, for whom we've done a, a study of different models of care, does do some innovation themselves mm-hmm. uh, in, it, because they have 10 homes and they get together and they talk about what works and what doesn't work. That can lead to innovation and better coordination. So, I mean, then the other issue is that for-profits fragment the system, right? And and they're less responsible to us because there's lots of information we can't get because we're told those are, are the secrets of business, not our business, even though it's our money. Yeah, and I'm and I, I, thinking about things like training and ongoing education and that kind of thing, because I noticed in some um, private for profit uh, nursing homes, they tend to hire people and then do their own training rather than hiring people who have credentials from a, a formal community college uh, program. And so there are issues with knowledge base of the people who are providing care from the start, but also a lack of you know ongoing professional development and then this gap in the knowledge around infection control 
and, you know, things like private rooms versus four bedrooms and four people sharing a bathroom and those kinds of things that they're structural and, uh, and do make a difference to the quality of care for, for residents. What do you think about the idea of partnerships with academic facilities? Because uh, you do hear some stories about where um, a facility is linked in a formal way with an educational facility where they have a focus on research into um, care of uh, people who require long-term care. And that there's a, you know, very much a link between academia and practice. Do you think that offers any potential solutions for improving care? Well, I think we have models for continuous quality improvement. And that can include formal and informal partnerships with researchers. And my research has all been done in partnership, but actually in partnership with the nonprofit employers organization here in Ontario, or at least primarily the nonprofit uh, Mm -hmm. employers and with unions, because I think it also depends on what kind of partnership it is, uh, who, who gets included is it, um, does it include the people who provide care? Because we have long argued that the real experts on what goes on in long-term care are the people who provide the care, the people who live the care, uh, yeah. the families who visit in care. And so it partly depends on on what kind of partnership that is. I think, of course, I think that, uh, that those partnerships are important, um, as are some partnerships uh, with hospitals Although, again, with hospitals, we have to be careful that the medical model doesn't become the primary model. And so we only focus on clinical care and affection support, not on loneliness and uh, the kinds of social supports people need. Exactly. So, well, we're, we're getting near the end of our time here, Pat, and one of the things that we want to do with these podcasts is leave decision makers with some solutions based on the lessons learned from this. And so, uh, you know, I'm asking people that I'm interviewing to sort of select the top three key levers for change that you would suggest that decision makers of all stripes should be paying attention to going forward. And I'd also be interested in your comments as a non-nurse to what you think the nursing profession could or should be doing to support unregulated care providers in these settings. So some thoughts from you on on those, Pat, would be very welcome. Well, um, I think the nursing issue is very important. We've worked in combination with the nurses' unions on a lot of our research projects and recently did a project, well, before COVID, a project on uh, what could be rewarding in long-term care for RNs and and RPNs, which I think is another question, because as I'm sure you know, it's seen as the last and worst option, not just for (laughs) residents, but also for nurses. That's where you go when you have no other options. Although we interviewed a number of uh, of nurses who talked about how that was their attitude going in, but they had found it in in many ways the most rewarding work because you really got to know the residents, you got to know their families, you got to know the other people you were working with if you had the conditions to do that. So so I think it's really important uh, to think of that. And also really important to think in terms of constructing teams that include everybody in the place. Um, And that's about 
the mentoring and it's about the credentialing issue that you were uh, raising. It's really hard for the RNs uh, who in uh, many places are the managers in, in uh, these places and their primary responsibility uh, to get the work done if their staff does not have the kinds of uh, education and, and training they need and if they don't have the capacity to make sure that that's the case. So I think that's really important. So that's related to what are my top three. One of my top three is that we need national labor force planning. We argued this in, in the paper we did for the Romano Commission many right. years ago. Uh, so have the nurses unions. We have no national plan. Every, every uh, province and territory has different credentials, different programs, different, like surely we could agree to some extent on what are the basics uh, in terms of planning for our labor force. And, and there's no question we have a crisis in terms of the labor force, whether we're talking about nurses or, or uh, what we in Ontario call personal support workers, that we have a crisis. And, and in order to address that crisis, we also have to do something about working conditions. Yes, um, agreed, yeah, yeah. Because I think there's a sense on the part of uh, some decision makers that once the pandemic is over, everything's gonna go back to the way it was. Absolutely, we have the highest turnover rate in long-term care of the labor force of any sector. In yeah. a staffing study in Ontario said most, most people uh, are going to leave within five years and, and, and a significant proportion in two years. Like what kind of a labor force is this and what kind of labor? So we really have to recognize that we have to change the conditions and that the conditions of work are the conditions of care. It works both ways. You keep the workers, but also you improve uh, right. the kind of care uh, that is provided. And I think that that means we have to have nat national standards that are enforced. And I know that um, there are lots of arguments ag against this, but first of all, we have to be really clear that standards aren't the same as standardization. Uh, that's what we do with the I think that gets back to that process outcome kind of thing, because healthcare is so focused on process, right? That's when people start thinking about standardized things. But if we're looking for standardized outcomes, I think it changes the focus, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And you think of the Canada Health Act, it's a set of standards that are, are like principles about how you have to uh, have to operate. And, and I can think of lots of them, like make sure that food is cooked on the premises, <laughs> that you recognize that it's central to care. We did a lot of hard research because we ate the food in every place we were in and, you know, it's a real education, I have to say, uh, to do that. So I think standards and standard uh, standards are required that allow flexibility, allow adaptation to individual environments within and as well as among provinces and territories, and they have to be enforced. And the way we and of course we need more money. So the money has to be tied to standards. And we have to make sure those standards are met. And I think unless we move in that direction, we're just blown in the wind. And we're throwing money away if we just say to the provinces, we'll be the tax collector as a federal government and just give you the money and you can do whatever you want with it. Give it to the for-profit sector, um, spend it at the racetrack. You know, like um, what we have to have, make sure it's spent and that it's spent in a way that really benefits the people who need care. And we need to change our whole 
notion of what long-term care is and think about what, what, what kind of place do I want to be in? Because it could be any of us tomorrow. Yes, exactly. And certainly my interest in this is, you know, as I'm aging, thinking about, you know, and, and both of my parents lived to be 96. And you know, my, uh, my father was never, uh, he never needed a, a nursing home facility, but my mother did for you know, over two years. And uh, it's a real uh, awakening when you, you know, see the quality of life in a place that doesn't have much in the way of resources for enrichment and, uh, you know, where people care. I mean, the people who looked after my mother, I think, cared very deeply for her well-being and welfare and, and did their best. But when the resources aren't there, it's it's pretty difficult to do that. And it's hard to bring joy. <laughs> it's hard to bring joy is absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. And so and that's, I, I think one of the messages that I get from you too, Pat, is about the importance of involving stakeholders like family. Um, you know, that when we're, when we're looking at, um, you know, how we want to improve the quality of life, that the caregivers and the family are extremely important people in, in uh, thinking about the direction that we want to go in in the future. And I think the other message that you get is we're putting taxpayers' dollars into this care right now and not getting the quality that we want and that people want for themselves and their loved ones. So how can we change the focus so that we're getting the return on investment and we're getting the value proposition that we want and need as Canadians. And that we appropriately value the people who need care and the people who provide care. Absolutely. Again, you know, nursing as an engendered profession constantly feels like nobody really understands the cognitive and emotional burden of care and how much, you know, uh, education and training and experience goes into being skilled at doing that. And uh, and I'm sure that that's the case for caregivers in long-term care who are not uh, professional staff. It, it, uh, it has to be even more challenging. I'd like to challenge those people who are making the decisions to sit down and help someone eat in a long-term care home and realize how what skilled work this is. Very skilled. It's not a plate. It's not a point of, uh, you know, just getting something from the plate into the stomach. There's absolutely a, you know, enormous amount of uh, cognitive uh, and emotional work that goes into that. So, uh, you know, so the caregiving doesn't come on the X chromosome. <laughs> no, no, no. And uh, and and the the whole notion that because you're a woman you care about isn't necessarily true either, right? But one of the things we see in long-term care is the enormous amount of unpaid work uh, that is done by families. And of course, we've seen that uh, during COVID when the, it's absent, it became visible. But there's a lot of unpaid work done by the people who are otherwise paid too, who are employees, who are staff. They work through their lunch hours. They come in early. They stay late. Uh, they go shopping for residents uh, after, uh, after work. Uh, they they prepare the Christmas party all on their own time. They do an enormous amount of unpaid work that also reveals the sort of absolutely dismal levels of staffing we have in long-term care. According to some of the more recent research in the U.S., uh, they're talking about more than six hours per resident per day, yeah. given the complexity. And that doesn't surprise me. And, and um I think there was a study that came out of 
one of the research institutes at BC recently that was really quite damning in terms of Canada's staffing for long-term care and hours of care compared to facilities in OECD countries in Europe. Absolutely. And, you know, unless we attend to the staffing, we can't do any of the other things. It's it's an essential but not sufficient condition, right, Yeah. for moving forward. Any last words, Pat? I want to thank you so much for participating in this. Um, is there anything that you felt you wanted to say that you didn't get a chance to say? Well, I want to thank you for attending to this area. The other thing, one last thing I would say is we have been totally focused on safety and COVID might make us be even more focused on safety. But life without risk is no fun. That's an important point, too, you know, that uh, you know, if you're just going to bring people into a long-term care facility and tie them into a chair so they don't fall. Absolutely. Not, Absolutely. Not much of a life. <laughs> you can't go on the balcony because you might fall off. You can't, you, you can't actually have some food that's not mushed because you might choke on it. And, yeah. you know, as Gawande says, let them eat chocolate whenever they want. <laughs> Very good. Let them eat chocolate whenever they want. It's a good. That's a good closing statement. Thank you again, Pat, very much for uh, for doing this. And I'd like to again thank Longwood's uh, Publishing for supporting this series. And I hope that um, people listen to your messages. And I hope that those listeners who do hear the podcast will uh, refer the podcast to their friends and colleagues. Thank you again very much, Pat. Thank you for your interest in this area.